0: So it's lovely to have been included in this illustrious list of Mizrahi speakers. And I asked myself the question, what does it mean to give a Mizrahi shir? Like, in what way is it different? Is it just simply that you're not quoting from the opponents of Mizrahi thought? Could, that, could you know, would, that, would that express what a Mizrahi shir could be? Is it perhaps the pronunciation? So it's the book of Shemot and not yes. you No. Know, could that be what it means to give a Mizrahi shir? But that it could be any of those things. So you're not quoting from the, the Satmar and the Turi character. You're quoting from Rav Cook and Rav Gorin or something along those lines. But then I thought maybe there's something different about giving a share within a Mizrahi context, and that is it's something that I'm really sort of grappling with in terms of if we're ever going to get ourselves out of exile of you know, living outside of our homeland, then we have to think more like a nation and not like individuals. So I've come to a mini-conclusion that a Mizrahi would be looking at the Torah on a national level, not on an individual level. So to that extent, what do we mean? We're not Yidden or Jews, we are Am Yisrael. Now, in quite fascinatingly, when those who don't necessarily subscribe fully to, to this ideology talk about Jewish existence, it's very much individual-based. It's your Olam Haba, your your, your mitzvot, your, your averas, your, your gan and whatever it might be. It's not, but you don't often hear this term, the idea of a collective. For sure, there's collective responsibility and there's a gazillion gemachim that you can look in the advertisers. And yes, the community takes care of its own. But I still think it's, in, it's individuals helping individuals rather than defining ourselves as a nation. Now, it could be a nation in exile, a nation waiting to go home, a nation living in our homeland. But this national aspect, I don't think, is part of the lexicon or the Weltanschauung, the, the philosophy, the world outlook of, of people who would who fall outside. So, what I want to try and do, using a, I think, a, quite a profound Torah lesson from Rabbi Milamed, Eliezer Milamed um, from Israel, to present a different perspective on or aspects of this week, etc., but national. So we're looking at, and it's quite easy in the book of Shemot because if you talk about the Bereshit, spoke about the development of individuals that eventually led to, we are nation building in the second book of the Torah. And to understand what it means to be a nation and how God would react to, to nations rather, than, or to our nation rather than to us as individuals. And there's a whole different concept of divine providence. And, and we'll see, it's, it's, quite, it's quite an interesting approach. If it pushes buttons, that's fine. It means that you've engaged with it, even on on a, on a negative level. And if you enjoy it, then that's fantastic. But it can do with. I, I checked it out it actually with actually with colleagues from the writ department. So let me share with you a beautiful article in Hebrew that's very sophisticated. So they enjoyed reading the language just as, as a language, and she she liked the idea, but said it, it could it could be used in a in a. You'll see. You you also have it skirts on potential racism, but you'll have to decide whether it does or it doesn't. No reason to be parov, just no be controversial. Very least, you'll remember the experience. So we're going to speak of the Jewish people of Am Yisrael. So where do we start? The book of the Sedra of Shemot dealt with the formation of the nation. We have somehow parov. No, right at the beginning of this book, no, we don't hear of Am Yisrael beforehand. And all of a sudden, by Yomah al Amo, he says to his people, "Hine Am b'nei Yisrael." It's interesting that are enemies view us on national levels before we, have, we self-identify as a nation. We, we were a family, tribal unit going down to Egypt. We had grown, we had become more numerous. But nowhere in the end of the Book of Beresha, or in this opening line, do we ever see ourselves as anything more than the family of Yaakov coming down to Egypt. It's fascinating that our, our detractors label us, which is very true of anti-Semitism. You know, the term orthodox was something that they had to come up with when there was reform, you know, it's always the other that defines you as rather well than defining yourself, which is... Insult. Yes. There's always something negative about someone else defining you rather than you taking control of that. And I think that's also part of nation building, of you know, changing the way Jews see... We see ourselves. We have to take control of our own narrative. There's an amazing line that I heard on a video from Rabbi Huda Avner, of blessed memory. He said, what happened in 1947? It's a, it's a, I think it's in the book, One his book about the presidents. He said, Jews stopped being objects of history and became subjects then he elaborates that object of things people do something to. i think of jewish history it was being acted upon the subjects <laughs> taking responsibility for our own destiny which i think is the most beautiful concept that shift and there's a certain shift that we that we need to make in our thinking in our in our judaism how we see ourselves how we relate to ourselves if we want to make the next stage almost that at that, that cynical ironic piece where the Mashiach comes and nobody wants him because he's got the wrong hat or no hat, the wrong keeper. You know, it, we're never going to get in that, to that state of acceptance if we don't accept ourselves first and being there. So Parah calls us a nation, and that's what we become in the first sedra. Looking at our sedra this week, the sedra of our era, something else takes place. We now have the development of the, of our nation, but as distinct from everybody else. So in the first sedra of the Book of Shemot, we were a nation that perceived as a threat or perceived irrationally as a threat to Egyptian society and Egyptian stability. And therefore, the plan to enslave us and to keep us controlled was unleashed. And this week, etc, we have the development of that concept, but it's more about demonstrating the distinct nature and quality of our people as a distinct unit from the Egyptians. And that, that's, that's really important that we do see ourselves as distinct because eventually we get to Mount Sinai and God then declares, you are the chosen people. You are my treasured people. So we become distinct, but only because we've embraced that identity. Otherwise, we wouldn't have understood the identity. And I think always when we're looking at, at the Chumash, especially in an era where there's so much available online and, you know, watch this movie. Why? Because it tells you this brilliant idea. And by the way, the Torah has the same idea as well. Well, wow, the Torah is really cool because the movie said it as well. Now, we've got to recognise always the context. Now, what, what made sense to our ancestors 3,000 years ago and not just what makes sense to people today who need Torah explained in a, in a, in a modern context, had, the, the message had to make sense and therefore the concept of distinction of chosenness would have had to make sense to the people as well. Otherwise it was like, well, what are you talking about? We're just in a mix of, of people. And this happens with two different so how do we have this distinctive nature of the Jewish people? It happens in two ways. Number one, through the plagues, and number two, through a change in the name of Hashem that's introduced in the opening part of the parasha, and we'll see how that name of Hashem, the, the four-letter name, Tetragrammaton, for so those that like posh English words, the gate, the yud the he, the vav the he, or in English, the was, the is, the always will be, which is essentially the contract of haya here That's who we frame to each time. Baruch Hashem literally translates as you, you, God, are the, you, the was, the is, the always, will be, are the source of all blessings. The, the God's eternal. Haya was, however, is, yehia will be. That's the God we pray to. That's why God's eternal, because he he's always is, and he's the first cause, because he was and will never cease to be. Before God decides to hit, and that's the word from the, from the text, Hakot, to smite the Egyptians, there's another hitting going on in our sedra, well, in last week's sedra, that sort of evokes or springs about in Kabbalistic language, it would be, we put effort in down below when God then responds from from above. So, what happened in last week's sedra? Moshe Rabbeinu finally is growing up in the Egyptian palace, which is all very, very lovely. And Vayetzeh he goes out to his brothers, Vayabesiv, at time he sees how difficult life is for them. Vayar ish mitri, ish ivri he sees... We're only going to deal with the literal reading of the text. No midrashic, no, no commentators, just looking at the story. He sees an Egyptian, an ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man, hitting an Ish-Ivri, a Hebrew man. Now, these terms I'm going to suggest from this article are not indicative of two individuals, but are actually screaming on the national level. This was a fight between Egypt... And the Jew. This was not just one Egyptian trying to beat up a Jew. This has national implications for what happens next. What does Moshe do? By Yifen Kova he looks both ways, checks no one's watching. By Yaoki Anish he's no one's looking right. By Yaq et Hamitsri, he smites the Egyptian and buries him. On the second day, he goes out as well. Moshe must have thought, hey, getting out of the palace is quite a crazy experience. Everyone's always fighting each other. And now, shnei anashim ivrim, two Hebrews are fighting, and it makes that point, are attacking each other, about to attack each other. Vayomelarasha, Rasha, he says to the wicked one, lama Takere if he's wicked, then why doesn't he punish him? He just has to give him a musad rasha. he starts giving him a sheer. Why are you hitting him? You should be hitting him. It's not nice to hit him. So with the Egyptians, he didn't say to the Egyptians, hey, my Egyptian no, comrade, let's not fight. Let's sort of talk it over. If there's an issue, we can have... Conflict resolution, we can sort it out. So Moshe's response was very disproportionate. The first time he goes nuts and kills a guy. The second day, even though the Torah makes it very clear that the one who was about to hit is a wicked person and therefore presumably deserving of some sort of retribution, some sort of punishment, he's still wicked. And Moshe just talks to him rather than than, than punishes him. Says Rav... um, What's his name again? Rabbi he said, How does what's going on? We've got a, na- a national concept here. And There's two types of divine providence. There's Hanhagah Khalit, that's this general providence where God watches a nation and interacts on, on, a, on a national level. And then the individuals don't, this is quite a, pa- a powerful concept, then individuals don't matter. So individual, righteous individuals in a wicked nation get punished. And we'll explore why that would be why that's a fair concept with a reference later on or there's hanagab pratit on an individual level on an individual level and there can be a clash when the good gets wrapped up with the bad or the bad or the bad people get get some benefits and life goes well if, if god's blessing the land of the nation because the majority of the nation are worthy of blessings and of crops being fertile and rain falling then even the wicked people who are Stealing land has happened with our ancestors throughout the eighth century BCE. They were pretty nasty. Our, our our ancestors in Israel. They used to steal land from the poor Jews and then make the Jews pay to rent their land back. And it was total corruption and perversion. Eventually, they got exiled. But you no, know, these wicked people presumably benefited from the blessings that the nation had, and they were able to then harvest crops that didn't really belong to them, hike up the prices, and make life miserable for all the poor, weak Jews. Moshe asked no questions in last week's surgery. He just goes about and does what he wants. You got an Egyptian or Egypt are humiliating the Jews. And we are God's people. God says to Moshe, they are my nation. You're going to bring them to this mountain. They're going to serve me on Mount Sinai. I want you to. Be there. They're going to leave servitude of Pharaoh. They're going to come to me. We are God's distinct nation. And when you've got our nation versus their nation... They have, to be, they have to be gotten rid of, and we have to survive. So Moshe doesn't sit down with the Egyptian and have conflict resolution chats about why or not he should be beating up a Jew. It's Egypt versus the Jews. Egypt has to die, the Jews have to survive. Now, why do we have to interpret it this way? Because no, there's, no, there's never any type of condemnation of Moshe's behaviour. God doesn't condemn Moshe. The text doesn't condemn Moshe. But also because... I mean, partly what you said because it was an Egyptian. Well, he's not going to kill one of his own, and he knew by by now that that he wasn't Pharaoh's daughter's son. Yes. So maybe that's why. It's like, well, I can kill an Egyptian, but I'm not going to k- kill one of my own, one of my own brethren, sort of thing. So, so there is that beautiful interpretation that I heard many years ago um, on a tape from Rabbi Bernstein, who, who used to give shear in London when I was when I was growing up. And he he's from one no, vayifem Kobako, He looked into himself, and he saw there was no ish. There was no identity. Like who am I? Am I Egyptian? Or am I Jewish? It's, the verse is actually reflecting on Moshe's own sense of search of identity. There's there's no one here. I'm I, I'm identityless. So what the Moshe thought? Who am I? Egyptian? Am I a Jew? He slaughtered inside of himself the Egyptian identity. And decided to be fully. It's a beautiful, inter- beautiful psychological spin on this particular verse. Different from what we're saying here, but I think it's still. There's still a, yes, there's still a sense of I need to identify with some national group here, and I'm identifying with the with the slaves and my, my people rather than with than with the Egyptians. There's no problem with a Jew killing a Jew if it's for the right. Words. Correct. You you can kill in war. You can kill in self defence. Yes, <coughs> and we'll we we'll actually see an an, an an expression of that that the law. Halacha actually changes when we go to war because we'll say it wrong. When, when we go to war, we lose our individual identity as soldiers. We are no longer an individual. We don't exist on an individual level. We, we exist with a national identity, and then as a nation, certain things are permitted on a national. So yes, I can't kill you now because I'm an individual, you're an individual. But if you're my enemy, you're attacking me, and I'm a soldier and for a, a national a soldier and for a nation. I can end your life because that's allowed on a national level for self-defense. It's true it's allowed on a self-defense for individuals, but the halakha, we'll see ex- expressions from the Rambam, how that change, halakha changes. As a, soldier, as a soldier, are you allowed to kill 25 Taliban? Uh, we'll Depends what your, is your name is. Only, only if you're a spare soldier. <laughs> yeah. Oh! oh. Is it, is it, well, he's um, now in trouble. <laughs> this, this Let's hurry up to shirya. us. So, there, yeah, so, so for, I guess from this point of view, individual is based on the idea of a, you're being pursued and that you've got the right to self-defence. When we're talking about a national level, no, it's a different mindset of how the soldier is perceived. There's a different set of rules then start to apply. we will give you some more, later on more examples. I, was quite, I didn't know these, this Rambam in mean, the laws of Avodah of Zara before. And it's quite amazing how things that would be, would be forbidden to individuals are permitted on a national level if you're in the army, not just because of pikuach nefesh. But because possibly your identity is changed, you're no longer the same, and you've got a different different status in society. But if you're a soldier, you wouldn't know whoever you're killing if they're Jewish or not. That's that. And that's the tragedy of World War One when you had German Jews and British Jews and they were shooting each other, and, mm-hmm. and Gosh, then you get all those oh, right now, idea. Mm. Yes, for sure there uh, are. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's part of that tragedy. Yeah, so, so you don't know. Correct. So I think it, can, it can go wrong. Yeah. For right. sure, it must be. I'm sure there were Jews who who. Probably ended up their lives having murdered or killed, but whatever. Yeah, I'm also thinking with this: when he kills the mitzri, that's distinctly the enemy. He's that the the one with all the power. You don't stop and have a conversation if there's somebody there with a weapon. But when it's two Jews, you don't want to demonstrate to Jews that we're just as violent with each other. We can work things out in a better method. We can work things out through talking. That Sometimes. isn't that what Mo, being. But the fact that he doesn't kill the bad one. Yes. The Jews are not it, innately violent. They talk a lot, but they're not innately violent. Correct. And I, when I was in Israel over the, over the winter holiday, and I, they sort of travelling around on buses, looking out the windows, because it's always told, to shoot, if, it, if it's God's land, and the apostle says in Akev, God doesn't stop looking at the land of Israel. You're On a bus, you can't go to sleep. Right. You've got to keep looking out the window, because God's looking out the window. <laughs> all the time. And I, I sort of motivated... I kept coming back in my mind. I don't know why this came from. Just like this epiphany moment of Golda Meir in my brain. Uh-huh. You no, know, that line from Golda Meir that we can we can forgive them for killing our soul, our sons, but we can't forgive them for, for, for making our us sons killers. Yeah. And I looked around the country and I thought, the Torah described as you know, it's ways are ways of pleasantness. We're meant to have you no, know, not that we're just these shepherds running around fields and everything else. And there is, you know, but I think life has brutalized our people and corrupted some of our, our core fundamental teachings the trial is so full of look after the stranger be sensitive towards the stranger your your meals not complete on a on a tov if there's a widow an orphan or some you know person that has no connections mm-hmm. on their own it doesn't matter how many hashkoches you've got of food your food is wrong if someone's lonely and that sort of super sensitivity to the other i think is really part of judaism when you come travel around and these psychos in Jerusalem hooting before the there's a reason to hoot. Yeah. It's the most noisy city. It's so. I mean, it drove me nuts after a while. Like there's all this and this anxiety and this, this deranged way of doing things. This stress of someone's always out to get you. Have I, you ever driven up north? Is it Northumberland Road? Yeah, me yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, You you could absolutely <laughs> become. The you the yes. No, yeah. you could become very anti-Semitic very easily on some of our streets around here, which is a huge problem. But anyway, it's actually worse than God's spoon, I think. I think so. Oh. It also yes, yeah. right. So we've got this. Over, so Moshe out on a national guess against, get bumps off the Egyptian. Now God does the same thing in two weeks' time with the plague of the firstborn. Now all these firstborns are dying, even the babies who, for sure, did nothing wrong. So where's the where's the moral? ethical theological whatever justification for these babies losing their lives and being bumped off by god but it comes back again to this idea that it's egypt versus ishmitzri the egyptian collective versus the jewish collective we're being taken by god to be his people they have to make space on the world stage for us and therefore, rules that would apply individually, so yes, as individuals we're judged for being righteous or being sinners, and God's got an account on a way of processing our individual lives. But on a national level, different rules apply. And the wicked, so that the righteous can get swept along with any punishment. Or flip it on the Jews now. Why did all the Jews leave Egypt? you know, some Jews were bad. Some Jews come out, the prophets talk about, they came out with little idols, little statuettes that they were worshipping. They weren't all monotheistic and thank you, Hashem, loving Jews. They were, you know, thank you, idol. Thank you, this. Thank you, that. The whole concept of the golden calf came from people who presumably had been steeped in idolatrous culture and knew instinctively what image they wanted to make up for an idol because it was part of their, their experiences. So we're Irrespective of piety, individual piety or otherwise, Egyptians died at the death of the firstborn. All Jews got out on Pesach night. Yes, the rabbis do tell us in the Medrash, the plague, the plague of darkness, four-fifths died. And they read another word, the word chamushim, which literally means armed, or came out with certain weapons to protect, which would make a lot of sense going to a desert you would need some sort of protection, some Shomrim squad to look after the, the, the rabble. I mean, that would make logical sense. But they want to read it as four fifths, which is, again, it's, it's not the literal reading of the text. So but in the, in, when they emerge after the matzah evening and the death of the firstborn, they're all coming out. Hashem says again, liot lo la'am. He wants us to be his people. And therefore the Egyptians are the counterfoil to the Jews. If we, leave, if we live, they have to perish. Now, that, that's a concept. Let's apply it to another case. Back in the book of Bereshit, abraham turns to God in prayer. What about the people of Saddam? No, why, why? No, what about the tzaddikim, the, the, the righteous people? Why are they not being spared? I don't understand. And, he, and he's davening and screaming. So what did he want? So if the answer, well, hold on a minute, Saddam's a nation. So a nation we've just established, the righteous can get swept away with the wicked, they're wicked, it doesn't matter who you are as an individual, you're part of a collective, that's part of your broader identity, you have to go. What was Abraham asking for? So presumably we have to conclude, if Abraham was asking for individual righteous people through whose merit the wicked could be saved, Saddam must, must, have, must be viewed not as a nation, this was a collection of individuals, they hadn't coalesced around a national identity. So up to this point, I always thought Sodom was a nation. And God was punishing them, and my working interpretation was because that is beautiful. I think also Robert Bernstein, um, when I was a child, he you know, it's it's hamishim tzadikim, fifty righteous, betoch ha'ir, not in a kolal, on a mountain top, you know, praying and worshiping all day, but fifty guys living betoch ha'ir in the city, people that will inspire others through their example, not people in ivory towers that, that disconnect from society. He wanted. You know people to engage and have those conversations about being more righteous presumably this approach has merit i think it does saddam is now viewed not as a nation but as a collection of individuals individuals could have saved themselves that's why he was looking to save the righteous people and individuals could have saved other people others could have been saved in the merit of the good person because we're talking about here not about a nation but about individuals but they repent so why did you want to so that's that's the big mystery that the book of yonah is one of the big mystery books um whether on a literal level okay i mean yes miracle stories happen throughout so once you account for miracles anything's possible even existing in some sort of fish thing like we, we always stress at school it's not a whale it's a dug gadol that's one of our and then we just drive the kids nuts from primary school because um, we wanted to sort of show them that you know, look at the text. It's called a dugdug. Oh, it's a big fish. It's a big it's fish. A it could be well. It could whale. be any other big whale fish. Whale or 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 Idea that it was a whale. Because most thing. big. Because whales are big yeah. fish. <laughs> 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 well, well but feedback. Whales are mammals, it's not even a fish. So, so, yeah, you, so then you get, they get the die-hard animal lovers. No, it's not even a fish. It's a mammal. <laughs> and, oh goodness, and you just lose the will at that point. <laughs> but Ninve were given a chance, and so. Go back to Saja Ninveh. Why did Yonah not want to go? So there there are a gazillion different perspectives. And the Ibn Ezra actually has three interpretations because he's not really satisfied with any of the things he offers up because they each have a potential weakness. But if you assume that Yonah's reticence to go to the people of Ninveh was that he was embarrassed for the Jewish people. That If I go as a Jewish prophet and they listen to me, and they go and repent. Then how awful is it for the Jews who have been sent so many prophets and they're still stubborn? And don't listen. Like it's a bit of a, a bit of an embarrassment. So I'm gonna take one for the team. I'm not gonna go, and therefore there'll be no national humiliation. And eventually he does get around to going, and they do repent, and that then leads on to Jonah's depression and suicidal thoughts because potentially he's really humiliated by our people's lack of repentance and the Ninevites' desire to repent. And because so and God maybe wanted to demonstrate that. As Rabbi Sachs asked one of his Torah sheets on Lech Lecha, many years ago, he asked a profound question: Did God or has God lost interest in everybody else? Because the Torah starts off beautifully universal, the first two sedras. Then from Lech Lecha onwards, it's Abraham, it's Jacob, the Jews. That the rest of the world are there as attackers. No, but their stories don't really get a and God's interaction with them doesn't really take off till we get to the prophets, and then suddenly Israel's with all the the nations. So, it, but for the Torah's narrative and Rasak says no, obviously God hasn't lost interest and what God's doing in this narrative is saying well here's your role model here's Abraham the role model follow him like the, the, you know, the whole world couldn't live with God and now if you want to do it this is your specific example read his story anybody on the planet and he'll be the example of how you can all have a relationship with God following my role models who are doing it for me Can I just yeah. ask a question? remember how but somehow paro ends up in uh, yes in, uh, the uh, rabbi uh, suggests that Paro somehow lived uh, hundreds and hundreds of years I mean I always find it I don't I, I don't know the, the the scriptural context for making that link I always find it funny to assume like if you imagine that's the literal interpretation they're saying a statement that somehow he, he had longevity for hundreds of years which whatever but I can't explain that to you. then then it's then it's oh wait so then oh yeah so he doesn't drown so the pasuk in beshalach where he where the seed splits now the ad is a very complicated word in hebrew it's only a two-letter word but what does it mean is it until one or not even one so the not even one would say that para drowned as well if you say only one drowned then is left to witness the destruction of his nation and part of his punishment is seeing everybody drowning him sort of being left no, alone, with nothing, and everything's really washed away. So, I know, if it's I mean, literally that they're trying to suggest that he is the same fellow, then imagine the poor guy's stress. You know, he's lived for years without seeing a Jew. And then one day, this Fashtinken of fish-smelling Jew walks in, <laughs> had too much herring for breakfast, yeah, out the sea. And he's like, starts speaking the name of the was, the is, the always will be, like, ding, ding, tri- okay. trigger moment. Yeah. And I just, we're all going to repent because I've done this before, hundreds of years ago. And it's just too, it's just, just, listen. just listen to him. I'm not going yeah. to get. we're not doing this one again. No. I've done the frogs and the lights and all that business. Um, and I've not come across anything sort of to explain the, why they want to make that connection. Other than perhaps grappling with why would I mean the, the question is why would a non-Jewish pagan polytheist king want to suddenly believe a Jew? Like, what what is it about this holy man that would have distinguished him from any other holy men? Even the you no know, the charlatans I don't know who they were. You no know, the guys that would go around screaming in the name of some some deity that you know calamity coming. I once got accosted on the on the train in London. Going south of the river, so Nutter comes on on a Sunday with a megaphone and he comes on, Eloy, Eloy, and whatever, thinking he's speaking Hebrew. Unfortunately, I was only Jew on the trade, so he made a, <laughs> made a beeline to me. starts telling me that only, you know, who was the only person ever to be crucified. I'm like, no, the Romans did that to lots of people because that was their punishment. Maybe read history. And Eloy, Eloy was his attempt to actually, actually quote from chapter 22 into Hillim, which sounds similar but not identical. Aili, Aili, my God, my God, Lama Azaftani, which is once, which he, which they want to claim is what he said on the cross. Which I said, well, if he was God, who was he talking to? And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> why would he be talking to him if he can't save himself? Then whatever. Um, so, but there are plenty of these types of people. That I, that's one. You know, when you get, go into town, you get these. Especially if I'm not with anybody, who gets embarrassed when I start talking to these fellow. I have a lot of fun, A lot, a lot of fun. Um, just because, you no, know, they start, I can follow. Um, now. So that it, when it comes to Saddam, they're seen as into as a different to Mitzrayim, who are a nation, and therefore Hanhagah Klalit, this general uh, providence over the nation, that they are just individuals swept up with everybody else. Saddam were individual people, righteous people, therefore could save themselves in their merits. Others could be saved as, in, I guess your connectivity, a little bit like in, in a davening, we say at the beginning, El Ok Abraham, Ok Yitzchak, Ok Yaakov. And interpretation is, hey God, I'm about to talk to you. I'm not that great that I really can talk to you, but I identify that these are my grandparents. And so in their merits... More than that we you know, you know, of course, but when you're having dominion, it's, you know, versions of the reasons why you're dominion, but, you know, that you may not have that now, but that's not, matter, obviously, I mean, it's so sure, the people it's around you. Know. Correct. But identifying with, with, with the congregation, therefore the nation, but also with our greats. So I'm con- if I'm connecting to them, then I'm worthy of something because I den- you know, many Jews don't, don't know that they ever existed and don't have any clue of who they were, and therefore there's no identity, and we're saying we have this identity. The Zohar and a, a more obscure Midrash, Midrash Ruveni, quotes that teaching that. Lots of people have heard, but it's not only the, of the ordinary of the Midrashim, where the angels are claiming to Hashem, how can you save the Jews? Because they also worship idols. The Egyptians worship idols. What makes this group better than that group? And so it says, There is no difference between the Egyptians and the Jews. They're crossing and they're not crossing. So why are they drowning? Why sh-? But that's the point, that we are God's people. And they are the counterfoil to us. We have to be. The world cannot exist without the Jewish people. And that will be our conclusion as well. And the Egyptians... We weren't We weren't, we were... we weren't God's special oh. Oh, we weren't. OK, okay we, we, were. we were a nation, I guess, waiting to have the coronating... The, 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 the climatic moment of receiving God's law. But we were enough of a people. We did, we'd done Corban Pesach, which was a national sacrifice. We'd marked ourselves as distinct from, from the Egyptians with the blood on the doorpost. The plagues in our surgery this week... The first three plagues is fascinating, different from primary school, where the kids come home with a, with a, with a picture with the blue and the red jug. You know, the, the Jews had water, the Egyptians had red and the blood, and they all learn that. Other interpretations actually suggest that the Jews suffered along with the Egyptians for the first three plagues. And one of the proof texts for that, well, one in terms of philosophically explain why that would be the case. Because if God was punishing the Nile the Nile was worshipped as a god, then had to be a total punishment. Otherwise, Egyptians will say, look, your god is powerful, but our god fought back because there's a bit of water there. No, so if it's blood for everybody, then god is totally dominant over the Egyptian god of the night. That's philosophically, potentially. The other is, the passage this week said, by the fourth plague of of Arav, which we always learn is wild animals. Do you know what's the other interpretation that makes way more sense that we never learn, even though it's in a medrash? swarms of insects. of is a mixture. Now, if you've got swarms of insects flying, if it doesn't make sense, because the next plague is in the death of the animals. So they bring in disease and sort of, mm. in terms of a scientific or sort of a flow of, not that we need it's it to political. be scientific, but it makes sort of, it leads on to the next one yeah. naturally. God uses, and there's no, I don't think there's any contradiction, God uses the natural world to bring about punishments and, and messages to us. Also, it says in the verse that 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 the houses were full of Arav. Your house is, if you've got a bunch of animals in your house, it's not full, it's crowded. There's pockets of space where there are no animals because their bodies take up space and there's gaps between them. But if there are millions of, let's say, locusts flying in into a house, your house can be full of, mm-hmm. you can't move. It's, it's one that's, it's an, it's a midrashic explanation, um, along with the other ones, along, and it's very rarely taught, but just have it in your mind as Arov is wild animals that everyone learns but could be swarm mixtures because La- our, our of is from lara bev it's a mixture of swarms of different things and that anyway but in that particular plague it then says for the very first time god separated the jews from the egyptians so we're already emerging in this week etc as a separate and distinct nation for a purpose and that purpose is always to be god's people remember that the line let my people go was only used because it rhymes with no let my people go so they can serve me doesn't really rhyme in a cartoon or in a movie, and the idea of servitude to an, to an invisible god doesn't come over too well on screen. Okay, but got, no, Moshe never demands power to let them go. It's always to serve God, is the next part of the sentence. It was never never freedom for, for no purpose at all. Why is this though? Like, so, why do individuals belong to a nation? Why do we have to get swept up? So think of our bodies. If your leg hurts, God forbid, your head probably hurts because we're one organism, we're connected. Different parts of the body hurt, and the whole body hurts. It's unusual to just have localized pains. You know, the whole, will be grumpy and everything will suddenly start to ache. And that's true of our bodies. That's true of the organism of the Jewish people, of the nation. We're meant to see ourselves as this, as this nation. And therefore, a righteous person living in a bad country is connected to the fate of the bad country. Like, so your head's connected to your foot and your foot to your arm. And, we're all co- and to see ourselves as connected in that way, for better or for worse. Now, ultimately, we have to believe in God's divine justice, which would say that if a person is really righteous... If, even if they're swallowed up in a nation because there's this organism concept and we're all connected in the deepest possible way They as individuals must receive their reward and that's where you get the doctrine of will Olam um, haba and wherever all the accounts must get fixed now, a righteous person can't leave this existence and not receive the reward that was due to him even if his death is miserable because he was swept up in a nation which is possibly why King David in the first chapter of the book of Psalms tells us don't hang out with bad people because, you know, don't don't sit with the scoffers because you'll end up being a scoffer and don't stand on the path of those who are going in the wrong direction. The chotim, which we sit as sinners because that's the bad the church word. But a sinner, a chote is someone going in the wrong direction, which makes sense. Don't stand on the path of someone going in the wrong direction because you're going in the wrong direction. And then don't hang out with the with the wicked. And wicked, in the te- context of, of tehillim are those people, not who don't keep shabbos and don't eat kosher, the wicked are people who intentionally abuse the weakest members of society. It's always the orphan, the widow, and the poor. You know, that, that category of people who are defenseless, who are, who are who are vulnerable. That's who wicked people are within the context of the hill. So if you don't, you don't hang out with them, you're gonna be okay. If you if you make your place with such you no know, miscreants, then you're gonna end up getting swept away with punishments that affect them. Now, let's get almost finished. A Jew goes to war and gives his wife a get. halakhically that's either a real get or a get on a condition that if I don't come back, then retroactively we are divorced and it solves the problem of a chained woman, of an aguna and solves a lot of problems. But what is, <coughs> what is happening psychologically, forget the legal aspect for a moment, he writes, is a person is disconnecting from all the ties that bind him to individuals. His life as an individual vanishes when you go to war. His identity is as a soldier of a nation. There is no more i there is now the the we the collective what happens halakhically it's quite fantastic fascinating we're not allowed to worship idols we're not allowed to have forbidden relationships in ordinary life we're not allowed to kill someone in a war when the when the eye vanishes the eye that's forbidden to do these three things a new collective identity emerges and these sins become permitted in certain aspects of those sins a soldier can kill an individual in war you can take that sort of very disturbing scenario of taking a woman who you've captured in war mm-hmm. you've fallen for and you can have a physical relationship with her That's Yifat Torah, Yifat Torah, yeah. and you can do that within the context of war okay then the rules then once you've got the urge out of the way then the other rules apply you've got 30 days and then you've got to you know reconsider but you know we've got some kids in school and, and you know, quite a lot of non-jewish kids joining our school at the moment and we've got two boys who are yazidis they're the ones that isis you no. Know, you think about what, what isis did to their women folk you know that's what war does it brutalizes and t- turns men into animals or potentially turns men into animals and torah's got this this Yifat torah system that deals with the desires and the urges but then hopefully reigns in the brutality of what how war can corrupt a ordinarily balanced person and finally um avodah zara we're not allowed to drink yayin wine that was poured out in worship of of, of an idol not allowed to do that but a soldier can if they're thirsty so that the concept here is that is rambam the 8th chapter of the laws of odizara so the, yeah that's, that's the halacha so why because the eye that has the rules on the eye level has vanished you're now a different identity because you've gone to war and therefore certain laws have changed vis-a-vis you because you're not the eye you're now the part of the collective therefore hashem says beginning this week said this is the last part and, ne, Yisra, ni Hashem. tell the jews i am the yud the he, the vab they now previously all the names that the, our patriarchs had for god indicate some sort of limitation so we are I'm el shaddai which we had in the book of bereshit and the rabbis say shaddai is that god said stop to the world that was creating and made made a sort of a fixed board whatever that means in space but there were limits to the world that was created this word, the I, is, 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 is infinite. It's infinity. There's no boundaries. The word that is, that the always will be, is a name that, that deals with infinity. It doesn't matter how righteous you are, individuals can't deal with infinity. Only a nation, inf- a nation that's infinite, can deal with a God that's, if we are God's people, we are God. The, the conclusion is stunning. I've actually written down the Hebrew some of it because the way he writes it is so beautiful. He writes... Yes, the Prophet says in the book at the end of Devarim, Ki Hashem amma. We are a part of Hashem. We, Hashem's nation, the nation of the Jews, is an aspect of God. Just as God is infinitude and eternity, so the nation of Israel will always be. We can't stop existing because the world will stop. It doesn't, it doesn't work. To, you know, that's why we're still here. You no, know, Everyone's tried and we're, we're still around. So there's something in it that we are an eternal nation that doesn't go away. It just says it's not possible. That God's existence can be vanished, can be nullified. Similarly, it's impossible that the world cannot have the Jewish people. There's a concept of God Levad, V'am Yisrael Levad. We are not separate from God. God always was, is, always will be, so that's true of us. We say Shabbos morning. This is going to change. We Shabbos morning, davening maybe. We say in Shochen Ad, sharyim, and then we say in the mouths of the of those who are upright, tit Barach tit ramam, whatever the different nusuchs are, and then we say We praise God as Amcha, as your people. Individuals have one level of praise, but on a national level, we are God's nation, expressing God's eternal nature. We have to. That's our national destiny. But toch, from the depth of the darkness of Egypt, through God's interventions, both through Moshe getting rid of the Egyptian concept and then God continuing the hit, the hitting, the smiting through the 10 plagues and through this new name of God that was given to us on a national level. Through separating, physically separating the Jew from the Egyptian in the plagues. We were spared. Our animals were spared. with the plagues and through this revelation of this new spiritual concept of the name of Hashem. A new, a new stage, a new platform is built. In the development of the Jewish nation. So our nation developed... In last week's Sedra, through our enemies defining who we were and seeing us as a threat to their stability and never wanting to harm us. In this week's Sedra, first starting with Moshe, then continuing with Hashem, we really developed a sense of our own independent identity of who we are, our eternal nation, our eternal nature, and the fight, the fact that we have to be, others don't have to be, through this concept of Han Klalit, this general providence of Hashem running nations and individuals get swept away, or Hanhagah <laughs> Pratit, or individual providence. So on a national level, we have certain realities individually, and a nation ultimately is built up through individuals, but we need to identify as a nation to really fulfill our national mandate to be God's people. Yeah. Got a of course. The idea.